Welcome to Cato Audio for August 2011. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, Michael Barone evaluates the role of states as laboratories of democracy. Cato's Swami IR details the economic transformation of India. John Mearsheimer explains why leaders lie. Joshua Rovner takes on myths of Afghanistan. And Matt Welch and Nick Gillespie talk about brand loyalty in politics. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. The Supreme Court term has wrapped up. We're going to talk about that a little bit now. I'm talking with David Ritgers, legal policy analyst at the Cato Institute, and Ilya Shapiro, senior fellow in constitutional studies and editor of the Cato Supreme Court Review. Gentlemen, welcome. Ilya, we'll start with you. The First Amendment had a relatively good term, I suppose, at the Supreme Court. Well, that's uh, pretty much the only interesting part or main interesting part of the term in general. Uh, unlike previous years, we didn't have many blockbuster cases, but indeed the First Amendment uh, had a good run at it. First of all it was the funeral protest case. Snyder versus Phelps, that one uh, overwhelmingly eight to one, the court decided that indeed the free speech clause protects even hurtful speech as long as they're on uh, public issues. Of course, the protesters here were observing all local and state regulations. There was some factual dispute about how much disruption to the uh, funeral it was causing in the first place. But in any event, I think uh, some states and even Congress have been trying to tighten up or make more strict the regulations themselves to keep these types of protests further away from military cemeteries and so forth. Moving on, uh, there was a big campaign finance case out of Arizona, Arizona Free Enterprise versus Bennett. This one split 5-4, unsurprisingly, as, as all these types of cases do. And it was kind of a follow-on to the Millionaire's Amendment case from a couple of years ago with matching funds. Here, Arizona said that if you sign up for the public funding scheme that they have, then past a certain threshold of spending by your opponent or even by independent groups supporting your opponent give you more taxpayer money. And uh, the court found correctly, we filed uh, briefs in this case, that that imposes a burden on the political speech. And so that aspect of Arizona's public funding, the trigger mechanism, not public funding generally, the court went out of its way to say, is no good. And then uh, there was uh, also out of Arizona, a challenge to not vouchers here, but tax credits, scholarship tax credits. If you donate a certain amount of money that go to these funds to fund kids that uh, go to all sorts of different schools, uh, religious, non-religious, private, charter, magnet, all these different types that are eligible for it. You know, the state has no control over where that funding goes. These are independent uh, organizations that are set up. A challenge was brought by some taxpayers who thought that this was an entanglement of the state with religion. And the court said, even before getting to the merits that the taxpayers didn't even have standing to challenge that. There was no particular harm that they faced. But I think that's a win for educational freedom more generally. And the last one I want to mention is, of course, the violent video game case here. If, if this was the blockbuster of the year, you know the Supreme Court's not uh, wreaking too much havoc on the body politic. But here, the court, by a 7-2 to two margin, decided that California state law prohibiting the sale of uh, so-called violent uh, video games to minors 
could not be upheld. And indeed, as Cato's brief pointed out, it's nothing new for uh, adults or elders to be concerned about the latest medium through which gory tales are taught, going back to penny dreadfuls in the in the 19th century and cartoons and comic books and TV and radio and, and all the rest of it. Indeed, going back to the uh, Grimm's fairy tales, which, as uh, Justice Scalia said, were grim indeed. And so uh, it's kind of a curious state where we can ban on obscenity grounds uh, pornography getting to kids, but not, uh, not violent uh, instruments, video games or otherwise, but such as how the First Amendment jurisprudence has developed. And that's a win as far as I'm concerned. There was an interesting element to the video games case, and that was what Clarence Thomas wrote. He discussed specifically the founder's intent with regard to your ability to communicate with young people. How does that work? Right. So the, the two justices who dissented separately were Thomas and Breyer, kind of an, an odd couple invoking the 18th and 21st century sociology, respectively. Thomas's point was that parents were essentially, and especially the father in those hierarchical times, the absolute ruler of everything to do with his minor, meaning under 18 child. That's really not the way the law works, though. Even then, there's kind of a sliding scale. Five-year-olds don't have as many rights as, you know, 13-year-olds who don't have as many rights as 17-year-olds. So it's, it's some interesting history, but I'm not sure he's right about the legal implications. Well, I mean, it seemed like if you're taking seriously the origins of the Constitution that uh, in some cases, maybe you're bound to make claims like that. It's possible, but again, it's not the framers' intent or how they ran their own households. It's what free speech meant at the time. And speech meant speech. Apparently, speech in the uh, 1789 meant violent video games because James Madison was a big fan of Grand Theft Auto, as we all know. (laughs) Right. All right. Speaking of grim tales, uh, David Ritker's The Fourth Amendment did not have a very good term at the Supreme Court. It did not. And with the Kentucky v. King case, we saw the exigent circumstances exception to the warrant clause of the Fourth Amendment stretched a bit more. So further down the slippery slope, I'll set the stage. There's a controlled drug buy. The drug dealer goes back into an apartment complex. Police pursue him. There are two doorways at the end of a hallway, one left, one right. They smell marijuana at the one on the left and knock on the door and say this is the police. They hear rustling inside. They take that as exigency because they think that evidence, the drugs, are being destroyed. So they make entry into the home. They indeed find people using drugs, but it's actually the wrong door, and the drug dealer had gone into the right door instead of the left door. The police officers lost at the Kentucky Supreme Court, and this was excluded, but the Supreme Court reversed Settling a circuit split uh, amongst five circuits and and quite a few states that had weighed in on the issue, whether police officers can create the exigent circumstances that they then use to avoid the warrant clause of the Fourth Amendment. The Supreme Court said, yes, they can, and turned aside a number of potential tests. I think the most prominent and I think the most reasonable one would be a bad faith exception, where officers who would put themselves in a situation where they would know that they could take advantage of this uh, prospective warrant clause exception shouldn't benefit by that. And for perspective, the uh, Johnson versus United States, a case from 1948, very similar circumstances. There's uh, a narcotics informant who uh, smells opium being smoked in a hotel room from the hallway, calls a police officer. The officers come down. They 
smell the opium being smoked as well. They knock on the door. The woman finally answers it, and then they uh, take her into custody and seize the drugs. Well, Justice Jackson in that case said, here we have officers who have procured a search by virtue of the arrest and an arrest by virtue of the search, and that will not do. Well, what happened, I think, in the intervening decades, we've had the war on drugs. and We've had the slippery slope that the Fourth Amendment has been on for the intervening time. So that was indeed a grim tale in terms of the Fourth Amendment. And in that specific case, just for the impractical impact here, a wealthier person would, uh, who may own acreage would not find themselves in a situation like the one in Kentucky v. King. That's correct. Unless the police officers walk up the driveway, go to your front door, somehow, you know, invade the curtilage of the home to peek in a window or something, crawl around the base of the house. It's unlikely that uh, people of means are going to be impacted by this. But where it will be used, I think, is in low-income areas. It's just as a – to take two – Examples from opposite ends of the spectrum, suppose a police officer is walking down a public street. He looks in a window. He sees a man packaging cocaine on the kitchen table. They look at each other through the window. There's an awkward uh, stare, a little awkward moment, and then the man uh, packaging the cocaine proceeds to start flushing it down the sink. Well, there's exigent circumstances that the officer didn't create. But with uh, police departments that are pretty predatory with regard to their approach to Fourth Amendment concerns, we've seen a pattern of misbehavior. Durham, North Carolina, there was a uh, very poor neighborhood, uh, a lot of public housing, and the officers procured essentially a general warrant. They got one warrant for the neighborhood. And so complete with SWAT teams, helicopters overhead, they just searched everything. Now, it all got tossed out. But a savvy police officer leading searches with this could essentially just go through an apartment complex and listen at the door, see if they smell something that they think might be drugs. may not be, as it turns out, but relying on the good faith of the officer, knocking on the door, hearing rustling, does that create exigency? So I think that that's clearly ripe for abuse. The other case? The other case uh, I'd like to talk about is Connick v. Thompson. Now, this is, for me, this is the heartbreaker of the term. This is about prosecutorial misconduct, and it's a Brady violation. Brady versus Maryland, the Supreme Court holding that requires prosecutors to disclose exculpatory evidence. And in this instance, Thompson, John Thompson, the, uh, the defendant who successfully appealed through the circuit but then lost the Supreme Court, had been charged with two crimes. The first was an armed robbery. The second was a murder. In the armed robbery, the prosecutor had a swatch of clothing, a piece of clothing off of a pant leg that had been soaked in blood that had belonged to the armed robber. It turned out that the blood on the piece of clothing was of a different blood type than Mr. Thompson. The prosecutor then checked this evidence out of the evidence room and then put it aside. And it never came to light at trial. This would have clearly exonerated him. So he was convicted of the armed robbery. And then because of the armed robbery conviction, he did not testify in his own defense at the murder trial. So he was then convicted of both crimes. He spent 14 years on death row for crimes that he did not commit. A last minute, 11th hour investigation of the evidence turned up this blood test report, and he was released. He was retried. The prosecutor's office in uh, New Orleans insisted on retrying him. He was promptly acquitted, and then he sued. Now, there's two converging lines of jurisprudence that came together here in in a very pernicious way, contrary to police officers who benefit from qualified immunity, where if they're not negligent or acting in bad faith, then they can be held liable for violations of constitutional rights. 
Since the mid-1970s, we've had a doctrine of absolute, not qualified, immunity for prosecutors when they're acting uh, within their prosecutorial role, the decision to file charges or conduct in the courtroom, those core duties, they have absolute immunity. And then the other line of potential liability was municipal liability. And would the prosecutor's office, and by extension, the uh, city of New Orleans, the Orleans Parish, be liable for the courtroom misbehavior of one of its employees? This is a vicarious employer liability theory. And the Supreme Court has likewise construed liability holdings to say that unless the employer, the public employer, municipal corporation has created a policy official or otherwise, of violating or something that will certainly lead to a violation of constitutional rights and they're not liable. Well, both of these bad holdings that we've had uh, kicking around in Supreme Court jurisprudence held true. And so if you want to sue the individual, they say, no, you can't sue the individual. Uh, And if you want to go after the employer, they would say, well, we won't uh, look at this on a single instance violation. It would have to be a pattern of misconduct that would support liability. And then in dicta, the court discusses that you know, all of these uh, policy cases are about police officers and uh, prosecutors have law degrees. They're members of a profession. They're clearly, you know, big boys and big girls. They're not like police officers. That's a great rationale to treat them as uh, individuals for liability purposes. But we lost on both counts. So these two, I think, bad uh, pernicious lines of jurisprudence held. And I think that's a, a heartbreaking outcome. There was a case in this term of the Supreme Court dealing with class action lawsuits and uh, specifically Very dealt, for all of our dealt, listeners. But it dealt with it dealt with Walmart, the largest employer in the United States, and that's a relevant uh, characteristic of Walmart related to this case. Tell us about it. Indeed, this was considered to be the biggest uh, business case of the term. Of course, there's uh, again the liberal lament that the court has a pro-business bias despite so many cases being decided 9 nothing and written by that noted uh, right-wing ideologue Ruth Bader Ginsburg and so forth. This one indeed was one of those. It was decided 9 nothing for its main point that you can't just uh, allege that 1.5 million women any who uh, have all worked at Walmart at one time or another were all subject to discrimination generally. That's your whole allegation. You can't build a class based on that. There has to be what's called in civil procedure commonality under the appropriate rule. As as Chief Judge Kaczynski of the Ninth Circuit, who will be speaking at our Constitution Day conference in September, wrote uh, in dissent in the lower court, the only thing these women had in common was that they were women and that they were involved in this lawsuit. So it doesn't mean there was no ruling on whether anybody was discriminated against. If anyone really was, they can bring those lawsuits. They can even bring a, a class action based on some particular policy, but not just Walmart is bad and here is our class of women. So that's a good ruling. A couple of other business cases, the global warming case, Connecticut versus American Electric Power. So you can't just uh, you know sue every power plant and electric utility on the theory that they cause global warming and hurt your state or or what have you. The Clean Air Act takes care of that. The EPA takes care of that. It's a political process. And uh, again, this you know big business loss in the Arizona immigration case, not the SB 1070, which will be coming up next term most likely, but a challenge to a law that imposes punishments on on employers who hire illegal aliens and have to use E-Verified to use them. There's actually an exception in the uh, relevant federal immigration law that allows them to do that. And the court 
found that this uh, statute uh, fit into that exception and therefore ruled against the Chamber of Commerce and, and the business interests. So you really, surprise, surprise, in business cases like any other, have to actually look at the statutory text of the law before you know how it's going to come out. And one of the more interesting cases in a unique holding was uh, the Bond case. This is actually a woman who discovered that her best friend had been sleeping with her husband and he was the father of her child. She decided to poison this woman and put caustic substances on surfaces she knew her best friend would touch. So instead of being charged under state statutes with a maximum penalty of about two years, she was charged under a federal chemical weapons statute. She received six years in prison. Now, the statute was passed pursuant to the ratification of the Chemical Weapons Convention, this International Arms Control Treaty, and she challenged it on a Tenth Amendment grounds. And in a very heartening opinion, uh, this didn't address the subject, the actual conviction, but rather her standing to challenge it. Justice Kennedy said that, yes, she has standing. She doesn't have to be a state to assert the Tenth Amendment. And I think that it's positive. His opinion reads like a manifesto for federalism, how having multiple and at different levels vertical sovereigns, it's actually protective of liberty. And I think the very positive thing is that uh, none of the so-called conservative wing of the, the court jumped ship and found some reason to support this. And so I think that this may portend good things in the coming litigation on the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare. So the court here found that this woman could assert effectively on behalf of her state that there is a Tenth Amendment issue here? Yes and no. Not so much on behalf of her state. It was just more that she did not have to be a state herself to object to the federalism concerns raised in the case. So what are the implications here then for the Affordable Care Act, so-called Obamacare. Well, that's that's the whole point. He spent five uh, pages, Justice Kennedy did, of the 14-page opinion as a kind of love letter to structural federalism and how the Constitution's uh, different structural clauses are there not just to uh, expound upon 18th century political theory, but to protect individual liberty. And nobody dissented from this. This was a, as David said, a unanimous opinion. So to the extent that the Obamacare litigation, which in all likelihood will uh, hit the court this next term. We're not sure which uh, uh, circuit will produce the opinion that will grab the court's attention most, probably the 11th Circuit, because that's the one where there's 26 states involved. But if constitutional structure matters, and Kennedy wrote the opinion and wrote that, then, then that heartens me. In September, we will mark once again Constitution Day at the Cato Institute, and uh, we'll be putting out yet another chock full of uh, useful, timely information about the Supreme Court's latest term. I think it's uh, fair to say the Cato Institute prides itself on putting out a Cato Supreme Court review that is the first and sort of sets the tone for other discussions about the Supreme Court term. It would hard to be sooner. Uh, we release it two and a half months after the, after the court ends, and that's so authors have to write their academic but accessible articles. We have to edit them and it has to all be published. It's really, uh, you know, all of us go crazy a little bit during this period, but I think it's all worth it. And this, this time we actually have uh, David right here writing an article on, on Connick v. Thompson. I'm, I'm looking forward to that. We also have John Eastman writing about Bond, a number of interesting academic practicing lawyers uh, people will have heard of. And then at our Constitution Day conference when this is released, September 15th, as I mentioned, we'll have Chief Judge Kaczynski give the uh, 
the keynote address, the Simon Lecture, and we have a panel looking ahead to the next term featuring former Solicitor General Greg Gare, Tom Goldstein of SCOTUS Blog and a renowned Supreme Court practitioner, and Adam Liptak, who's the New York Times Supreme Court reporter. All right. We're going to leave it there, gentlemen. You can find out more about Constitution Day at our website, cato.org slash Constitution Day. And uh, otherwise, uh, find out more information about this latest term of the Supreme Court and other constitutional issues at Cato.org. How frequent is lying in international politics? Which types of leaders lie the most? And to whom do leaders most frequently lie? Other states or their own people? John Mearsheimer takes on these questions in his new book, Why Leaders Lie, The Truth About Lying in International Politics. He spoke at the Cato Institute in June. The reason democracies are more prone to lying is very straightforward. Leaders in a democracy have to explain to their publics why they're pursuing particular policies in ways that leaders who are dictators or autocrats do not have to explain to their people what they're doing. There's just one heck of a lot more accountability in a democratic system. George Bush just can't decide, I'm going to take the country to war against Iraq and go off and do it. He's got to get support from Congress. He's got to have a significant amount of support from the American people. It's very different for an autocratic leader. Saddam did not have to get support from the Iraqi people in 1980 when he initiated a war against Iran, or in August of 1990 when he invaded Kuwait. So therefore, it's in democracies that you're more likely to see lying, and you're likely to see lots of lying to your own people. To take this one step further and put more of an American twist on it, I think the countries that are most likely to tell lies and most likely to tell lies to their own people are democracies that fight lots of wars of choice at great distances. The United States fights wars of choice. The Iraq war was a war of choice. Saddam did not attack us. You can argue World War II was not a war of choice. We were attacked at Pearl Harbor. Since then, we have fought a large number of wars of choice. And when you have to fight wars of choice, and you have to fight wars at great distances, where the American people sense that we're not that vulnerable, remember, we have no countries in this hemisphere that could possibly be called threatening. And on our western border and on our eastern border, all we have are fish. So we have Canadians, Mexicans, and fish. <laughs> and we've got thousands of nuclear warheads. And we're running all over the world fighting wars of choice. And it's a democracy. Do expect a lot of lying in that context. And this is why Eric Alterman will at some point in his life have to write volume two. <laughs> Let me conclude by just saying a few words about the downside of lying. Pretty much up to now and in most of the book, I talk about the strategic rationales for telling lies. 
And remember, I made the argument that Kissinger and McNamara and Johnson, Roosevelt, and Bush all told those lies for what they thought was the American national interest. They were not doing it for selfish reasons. We can argue in some cases they were foolish, but they were doing it for what they thought was the American national interest. Nevertheless, there is a downside to lying, and you want to think about this. The downside can have a domestic dimension, and it can have an international dimension. The domestic dimension is what I call blowback. And the international dimension is what I call backfiring. Now, let me just talk about both of them in the context of fear-mongering. And let me focus on fear-mongering because it's what the Americans do a lot of. And it shows you what the danger is to the United States of international lying. Just with regard to blowback, if you engage in fear-mongering, if you're an American president and you think you have to lie to the American people to take them to war, you're basically saying you don't have much faith in the American people. You're basically saying they're incapable of making the right decision if you give them the truth. And therefore, you have to deceive them to get them to do the right thing. That's really what's going on here. You have to deceive the American people because otherwise they won't do the right thing. This is what Roosevelt was thinking. Roosevelt was dealing with isolationist America. He wanted to desperately get into the war. He said, not in these words, obviously, but this is effectively what he was saying to himself. The American people are dumb cuffs. I got to bamboozle them. I got to trick them into this war. Okay. If you reach that conclusion about the American people, it's not a big leap before you're thinking the same way when it comes to domestic politics and domestic policy issues as well. So anytime a leader engages in fear-mongering, there's a real danger that his or her thinking about how to deal with the American people will end up dealing with a larger number of issues. So you get a real problem with blowback. And anytime you have a culture of dishonesty, a culture of deceit in a particular country, be it the United States or France, you pick the country, uh, you're asking for really big trouble. So lying has a real downside in terms of blowback. It also has a real downside, this is the international dimension, in terms of backfiring. And the reason is that if a president can't convince the American people to go to war by telling the American people the truth, there is at least a reasonable chance that the reason the president cannot convince the public is because the president is wrong and the public is right. Now, it may be the case, and I think this is true in Roosevelt's case, right? I think Roosevelt was right and the public was wrong. But in the case of Johnson and in the case of Bush, the public was right and the president was wrong. And the end result is that both of those wars, the Vietnam War and the Iraq War, eventually went south and backfired and caused enormous damage for the United States of America. So my final point, my bottom line here, is that you want to keep in mind that there is a very powerful tendency built into this country, the United States of America, to engage in fear-mongering. And fear-mongering has significant potential for causing blowback 
and for causing backfire. And that means that as long as we continue this remarkably ambitious foreign policy that we seem to be addicted to in the years ahead, you can expect our leaders to be doing at least some lying and for that to have some serious negative consequences. From the outside looking in, India's economic transformation appears to me miraculous. But that miracle came about after India abandoned old-world mercantilist thinking about self-sufficiency, curbing imports, and state-directed investment. Columnist and Cato scholar Swami Iyer detailed how many of these reforms came about at a Cato policy forum in June. When India became independent in 1947, the socialist government that took over saw free trade as a tool of British colonialism to keep it poor. So the general idea was that we must have economic independence to buttress political independence. Entire ethos of economic policy for three decades was more and more self-sufficiency and more and more public sector dominance. These were supposed to be the two basic principles which would achieve prosperity. It wasn't Soviet-style planning, it was a mixed economy. But at the same time, there were enormous licensing requirements of a very onerous nature. You couldn't produce anything without a license, you couldn't import a thing without a license. If you committed the sin of actually producing more than your licensed capacity, here you might have, your shareholders might applaud you. In India, you were in danger of going to jail, saying you exceeded your licensed capacity. Everybody was free to consume what he wanted because there were controls on what could be produced, what could be imported. I mean, in this particular way of life, prosperity was best achieved when nobody had the freedom either to produce or to consume what he wanted. There was supposed to be this lovely, big, benevolent government which would determine these particular things. Now, to begin with, this kind of planned approach gave India 3.5% growth. In the 1950s, that was regarded as fabulously good. I mean, under the British earlier on, it was hardly 1.2% a year. So they said, you know, I am a champion. I am doing 3.5%. A few years later, Singapore, Hong Kong, and the others began to do 7%. But once you become a self-anointed champion, it's very difficult to say, actually, I'm a dunce. So you turn around and say, well, actually, all those guys are different. Those are terrible neo-colonial puppets. But of course, what happened was that the neo-colonial puppets gradually became richer than the British master itself. I mean, Hong Kong and Singapore both exceeded British GDP while India remained poor. Okay, so this continued for about three decades. Indian tax rates, income tax went to 97.5% and so on. The idea was that this would abolish poverty. It did not abolish poverty at all. Poverty rates remained unchanged for about three decades. Then finally, in the 1980s, there was a switch. There was some partial grudging economic liberalization, plus there was a spending boom of the government. I mean, government spending rose at 18% a year. But a lot of this was financed by foreign borrowing. It was unsustainable, and so India basically went bust in 1991. It ran out of foreign exchange. So two, three things happened all together. First, India ran out of foreign exchange. Secondly, the Soviet Union, which in some sense was the admired model for, for so many, the Soviet Union was about to collapse. Simultaneously, in China, Deng Xiaoping had shown that, you know, the way forward is not more control, but big market-friendly development. These three things then combined with another completely unpredictable event. Rajiv Gandhi of the Congress Party was assassinated. So his party won that election with a minority government, but it no longer had 
the same baggage of saying, I have to justify all the socialist policies of my mother and grandfather. So there was some scope for some greater change. So it duly took place. So Mr. Narasimha Rao came in. He initiated these changes along with the finance minister, Manmohan Singh. Obviously, India was taking a loan from IMF and World Bank. The opposition immediately said, ah, you fellows are in very deep water. The World Bank IMF path was taken by Latin America and Africa in the 1980s, and they had a lost decade. The same thing is going to happen here. You're going to find that there's no growth. You're going to find that if you open up, all our industries are going to be taken over by foreigners. We will become neo-colonial slaves again. Almost every one of these predictions turned out to be wrong. Far from slowing down, after a couple of years to stabilize, Indian GDP growth took off. Between 94 and 97, it averaged 7.5%. At that point, you know, it was so obviously this change had succeeded that even though all the opposition parties had said, we will reverse these policies when we come, came to power, they did come to power, they did not reverse the policies. Now, mind you, in India, there was no ideologue. There was no Maggie Thatcher, there was no Ronald Reagan. So liberalization was a very pragmatic business and chaotic business. Very often, two steps forward, one step back, two steps to the left, then to the right, you know. It juggled up and down. And yet, the inexorable logic, the fact that the thing, model was succeeding, every new government that came followed roughly along the same path. And then finally, there was a lot of trouble between 97 and 2003. You got the Asian financial crisis, but India survived without taking too much of it. Then you got... Uh, there was a recession in 2001. There were two major droughts in India, which pulled the growth rate down. After 2003, world growth rose, India rose on that. And after that, India has averaged 8.5% growth. Truly, the Asian elephant finally became the Asian tiger, very unexpectedly. The Great Recession pulled growth down to 6.8%, and it's back to 8.5%. So it does look as though the cumulative impact of 20 years of hesitant, half-baked uh, reform, you reached a tipping point, and you have now achieved, it would appear, a sustainable rate of growth of 8, 8.5%. States have long been thought of as laboratories of democracy, but federalism also means competition. And new research indicates that Americans are voting with their feet and moving to states with more economic and personal freedom. At a June policy forum at the Cato Institute, writer Michael Barone talked about federalism and freedom. John Sample started off this discussion talking about federalism and the continuing vitality of it. And uh, I think uh, many on the right-hand side of the political spectrum, on the libertarian side of the spectrum, you know, complain that federalism uh, is uh, not as important as it used to be, has been eroded by a rampaging federal government. There certainly is something to those complaints, and yet federalism continues to be a major force. And as the economist Alfred Hirschman says, you have, you know, the options of vote or exit here. And one of the things that we've seen, as William Rugers pointed out in the last part of his presentation, is that Americans have taken advantage of the option of exit. In addition, the states are, as Justice Brandeis said, uh, laboratories of reform, and we get interesting uh, reforms coming out of them, things I never would have predicted. 
I mean, we are living at a time when it seems to me that we are probably seeing the outlawing of cigarettes and the legalization of marijuana. This is a slow process that's going on. You see the cigarette um, prohibitions uh, growing in various places and so forth. I don't know if California has a provision that pails of water are poured over the head of anyone smoking outside in Palo Alto. But on the other hand, if you go to Google Maps, you can find the map of medical marijuana dispensaries in Los Angeles, which looks a lot like the map of where there are white people who voted for Obama. So basically, you know, if you look at those 40s movies, people are going, you know, with the cigarettes and so forth. I suppose in the movies in the 2040s, we're going to see them going... And <laughs> so forth, but uh, never the twain shall meet. So one form of um, perhaps lung injuring simulant is going at the wayside, and another form is coming into practice. And this is happening slowly across the nation. When I was in my home state of Michigan recently, uh, there, one of the issues there is medical marijuana dispensaries, and what are your requirements for doing this, and who's going to regulate it, and what the local prosecutors are doing, and so forth. So. We don't see congressmen debating this issue, but it's a live issue for people in different parts of America. And we've seen other kinds of federalism on some of the cultural issues, some of which are mentioned here. We've seen, uh, you know, before the Supreme Court stepped in with Roe v. Wade, we saw uh, states moving toward or to legalization of abortion. You had at the time that decision came down in January 1973, 16 states with 41% of the population having substantially liberalized their abortion laws or made abortion more legally available, a process that probably would have continued in the absence of the uh, Supreme Court decision but uh, was sort of cut off there and the issue was nationalized. But we see other things. We have seen a movement towards more recognition of gay rights, of civil unions, and of same-sex marriage in some states, but definitely not in certain others. We're getting experiments with this. The nation will be able to watch what's going on. The, uh, you know, it, it raises the question for me sometimes, is the major threat to the family come from a few people who want to get married or a much larger number of people who want to get divorced. We've seen divorce law change 40 years ago towards no-fault divorce in just about every state. I'm not aware of any move to move that back on the part of any of the cultural conservative groups and so forth. I've talked to some people about it. I don't have any particular ideas along that line myself. But it's an interesting development. It tells us something about our society. So we can see some of those things, that there are still a lot of lively issues that are determined here. And of course, we do have the difference in economic regulation as well as personal freedom regulation, which has produced a lot of changes. Um, some states, you think of Massachusetts, this is sort of the New England diaspora the uh, colonial Yankees who were penned up in New England because none of the rest of the colonists wanted to have anything to do with them, who were kind of, they were very moralistic and very bossy. And we applaud some of their moralisms. They gave the country the abolition of slavery movement. 
women's rights, equal rights for women. We all think that those are good ideas. They also gave us other ideas like the temperance movement uh, as they moved across the West, across the northern part of the country. And I think we can still see their influence in the uh, personal freedom and economic freedom uh, indexes that are provided here. They have a clear idea what's right or wrong. That may change over time, but they do have it. And they are not at all afraid to use legislation and the coercion of government to enforce that on other people. And that's part of the process that we're seeing here. We have, um, on the other hand, you get certain exceptions to that rule. And even in New England, you get the state of New Hampshire. If you go back to colonial history, the state of New Hampshire was a smuggler's paradise where they did not have an established church telling people what to do as they did in Massachusetts. The basic character and personality of the state has continued more than 200 years later. They have license plate there, which as many of you know says, live free or die. Interestingly, and perhaps in contravention of that principle, the state did prosecute a man who put adhesive tape over the words live free or die some kind of a pacifist or something or an anti-war guy and they said no you can't deface your state license plate so I thought that was a little bit uh, you know inconsistent on the part of the state authorities in New Hampshire so you have these various contradictions in it that are kind of amusing There are many myths underlying U.S. involvement in Afghanistan, and those myths inform the ongoing choice to keep troops in that country and that region. Joshua Rovner is assistant professor of strategy and policy at the U.S. Navy War College. He addressed some of those myths at a Cato Policy Forum in June. I want to divide my comments today into two parts. And in the first part, I'm going to talk broadly about how we got here today and what were some of the underlying strategic assumptions that informed American strategy in Afghanistan and why those assumptions were wrong. The second part of the talk, I'll I'll briefly discuss where we're going. Okay, I think there are two myths that have underwritten American strategy for the last several years, and these are the myths of safe havens and loose nukes. When my co-author, Austin Long, and I started working on this a couple of years ago was the first surge debate in Afghanistan when people were already getting frustrated about U.S. strategy. There seemed to be no agreement on some basic questions. Who is the enemy? What is the purpose of the war? What is our goal? So we decided to try to figure out what people did agree on, and it turns out there were two things. One, people agreed on both sides of the aisle that failure in Afghanistan would create the possibility for al-Qaeda to reclaim its safe haven. You heard this all the time. The other thing they agreed on is that failure in Afghanistan was very dangerous because it increased the chance of nuclear terrorism. After all, Afghanistan is right next door to Pakistan, a nuclear-armed power with its own insurgent problem. So these were the things that people agreed on. There's this danger of safe havens and loose nukes. But we decided to look a little closer, and it turns out that neither of these assumptions really withstands close scrutiny. First, on safe havens, we hear this all the time. Failure in Afghanistan will allow al-Qaeda to reconstitute uh, its 1990s-style sanctuary. I heard it just recently from Ambassador Crocker, just the other day. He was using very vivid language to discuss this threat. 
right? But in fact, a safe haven for al-Qaeda is not going to happen. And there are important reasons why it's not going to happen. First of all, the 1990s are over. The 90s were a peculiar decade, right? A decade in which you saw the rise of al-Qaeda, a completely unique terrorist entity. Very large, very well organized, very well resourced, dedicated to a bizarre worldview, and dedicated to killing large numbers of Americans. We've never seen anything like that before in terrorism. Right? That organization is gone. That organization is no longer present. Most of al-Qaeda's senior leaders in Afghanistan and Pakistan are either dead or in jail. Osama bin Laden, a very charismatic leader, is now gone at the bottom of the ocean. The funding stream has dried up. The organizational coherence, which marked al-Qaeda in the 1990s, has been shattered. So this is not an organization that can simply reestablish what it had in the 1990s. The other thing that's different is that American politics have changed. In the 90s, the United States was very shy about attacking terrorist targets. I think back at all of the hand-wringing that went on when people brought plans to the Clinton administration for attacks on Osama bin Laden and his friends. That is no longer controversial. There are great controversies about American foreign policy today, but the opportunity to kill key members of al-Qaeda is not controversial at all. Moreover, if al-Qaeda tried to reestablish its safe haven, well, American commanders in theater would relish that opportunity. Right? The opportunity to simply target al-Qaeda bases, camps, centers, what have you, without having to get involved in the messy business of crossing the Pakistani border and dealing with that problem. Right? So the 1990s are over, and the safe haven fear has been wildly exaggerated. It's just not going to happen. The second broadly accepted assumption is that failure in Afghanistan will lead to nuclear terrorism or make nuclear terrorism more likely because it would increase the chance that Pakistan would lose control of its nuclear arsenal. We hear this a lot, but people are very vague about how it exactly would take place. Why is it that instability in one country would lead to instability in another country? And in fact, the more we thought about this issue, the more it sounded like the old-fashioned domino theory. In the Cold War, there was always an assumption that communist gains in one country would lead to communist gains in another country. So we have it today, where it's presumed that Taliban gains in Afghanistan will automatically lead to Taliban gains in Pakistan. There is no empirical evidence to support this proposition. The strength of the Pakistani insurgency has risen and fallen for reasons that have nothing to do with the war in Afghanistan. Right? As the Afghan Taliban has gotten weaker or stronger, that has not had any effect on the strength of the Pakistani insurgency. Right? These issues, in fact, are unrelated. Now, there are things that the United States can and should do to help Pakistan shore up its nuclear complex. This is an important issue, as it is for every nuclear power. And these include things like helping Pakistan implement its personnel and organizational reforms that it started to put in place about a decade ago to strengthen civilian control over the nuclear complex. We can also help Pakistan and India work on their diplomatic relations, although I have no illusions that that will be easy or quick. But over the long term, a denouement between Pakistan and India would possibly allow Pakistan to change its nuclear posture in a way that enhanced civilian control over it. Right? It's worth noting right now that these things are totally unrelated to what the United States does in Afghanistan from here forward. 
These issues are unrelated. So what are the consequences of this analysis? If the safe haven argument is wrong, and if the loose nukes argument is wrong, well, what does that mean for American strategy in Afghanistan? What we think it means is that it argues for a much smaller counterterrorism force in country. If safe havens are not a concern, then we do not need to get involved in building a strong central Afghan state that can control all of Afghanistan's territory. We do not need to worry about that. We can adopt a much smaller presence in the country. The estimates that we write about in the paper, we have it between 10 and 15,000 troops. And this can be done. It would be much cheaper, much more affordable, much less costly in blood and treasure. And it would be more strategically coherent. It would allow the United States to once again tie its operations to the overriding goal of reducing the threat of terrorism rather than trying to continue on the quixotic quest to rebuild the Afghan state. Right? The United States, it turns out, is very good at counterterrorism. We're very good at finding terrorists and killing them. It's our comparative advantage. What we're not that good at is state building, the process of helping another country build up institutions almost from scratch and create them for the long term. I argue that we should focus on our comparative advantage in counterterrorism and not our comparative disadvantage in state building. Brands have come and gone. Kodak, GM, the A&P store chain, and others were seemingly indomitable brands. And while those firms ultimately fell from their dominance, brand loyalty in politics has been remarkably stable until recently. Matt Welch and Nick Gillespie of Reason Magazine explore this political upheaval in their new book, The Declaration of Independence. They spoke at the Cato Institute in June. As a general rule, things, and to an extent that's rarely appreciated, things are not as they seem. Tectonic shifts in the course of human events, in the course of human history, are rarely predicted at the time, even by the people who are doing the uh, heavy shifting. In August of 1989, John Fund, who's known to many of you in this room, happened to meet up with the free market Czech economist Václav Klaus, and he asked him, so do you see uh, the, any good prospects for the East Bloc becoming free and democratic? And Klaus said, not in my lifetime. And uh, by the end of the year, he was the first finance minister of a free Czechoslovakia. In uh, 2007, a Morgan Stanley trader named Howard Hubler, I believe, he knew the housing market was going to uh, burst. He knew that you could bet against mortgage-backed securities and make a bundle, but he couldn't imagine the market going down further than 8%. And so as a direct result, lost something like $9 billion. It was the worst single trade in human history. In uh, 2007, just four years ago, the basic conventional wisdom was that the presidential campaign would come down to a contest between Hillary Clinton and Rudolph Giuliani. Giuliani, in fact, was in the uh, Iowa electronic markets, which I'm sure some of you are busy uh, betting in uh, even as we speak. He was the front runner in that for all every week except for one in the year 2007. And the electronic markets never once had on their list, even in 2008, a candidate named Ron Paul. And as we all know, Paul crushed Giuliani like a grape. 
the lesson here and what we talk a lot about in the first third of the book is that revolutionary catastrophic change is always and forever underpriced. It's as if we can't imagine that the world that we live in is capable of changing even 10% or 10 degrees. It's what we talk about a lot as existence bias or status quo bias. People think that the world that we live in, we're condemned to live in it in the future. In order to uh, see examples of it, we use this as a time frame basically from 1970 to 2010 and not just so that we can mix in as many uh, obscure cultural references from our childhood as humanly possible into the text. But if you think about every turn of the decade since around 1970 and what fears we were gripped with and uh, the worlds that we were going to be condemned to live in back then, they've all come falling apart. In 1970, we were going to have endless Southeast Asian war and a military draft and things like wage and price controls and hysterical government overreach. And by the end of the decade, we had no draft, no war, and we were deregulating trucking and airlines and media and beer. In 1980, we all assumed that it was runaway inflation and a Cold War that would last forever. And by the end of that decade, both of those were pretty much gone as well. 1990, who can forget, <laughs> the Japanese were going to control us for the rest of our lives. It was just a matter of what kind of rents we had to pay in Rockefeller Center. Needless to say, that all went away. In 2000, AOL Time Warner, my uh, good uh, pal uh, Robert Shear wrote at the time of that merger, forget the wild zone of libertarian freedom on the internet. It's all corporate from here on out, baby. Common thread here is that we always overvalue the reach and the extent of people who hold power at the given moment. We talk a lot about monopolies and duopolies, which are very instructive. You see any of these concentrations of power, by definition, end up treating their customers as captives. And the example that we use in the book is Kodak and Fujifilm. They dominated the market for color film in the world, still do to a lesser extent, but we'll get to that. 80, 90% of the market for decades, Kodak had as much as 96% of the market in the United States and was twice the subject of antitrust action from the Department of Justice. Even as recently as the late 1990s, the Clinton administration was saying we have to keep these antitrust protections in place. So what happened to Kodak? Well, it got kicked off the Dow Jones Industrial average in 2004 after seven decades. Share price went down from above 40 to below four. It'll probably be a penny stock by the end of the year. They had tried to continually trade up their customers, get them to buy ever more expensive film that you had to develop 24 to get the one picture that you wanted. And they're completely caught flat-footed by a digital revolution that accrued power to the individual so that you could take your own pictures, develop them as you saw fit. There's an application here to politics. Political parties try to treat us as a captive audience. Nick will talk about more of this in a second. The analog top-down model in every aspect of life is coming undone. And the question is, and is the central theme of the book, is how do we take that and apply it into the last places where the uh, dead hand is keeping us down? So our uh, subtitle for this shit is really, uh, you know, why is it different this time? I can see uh, some old-time libertarians in the audience, and uh, you probably remember stories going back at least to the early 70s about how libertarianism was on the cusp. We're like, uh, you know, Don Dawkins' band, this next album is going to really make us into a big act. But... Why is it different this time? And there's a couple of reasons. One, as we've discussed, brands are on the run. Everybody knows that Republicans aren't for limited government or unshackled free enterprise. If anything, uh, you know, they've proven, uh, certainly in the past uh, decade, that they are uh, almost the exact opposite of that. Democrats 
have also done a great job of showing that they don't care about civil liberties or limiting war or ending the drug war or even being particularly uh, uniform in terms of expanding the rights of gays to marry. It was fascinating to see Barack Obama, a liberal hero, hemming and hawing on the eve of the vote in New York State about whether or not it would be okay for gays to marry or not. And even now he's kind of hemming and hawing about that. And the gay marriage vote in New York was because of a strange kind of uh, coalition between a bunch of libertarian-leaning Republican donors and uh, somebody like Andrew Cuomo, the Democratic governor. But Americans were done with brand loyalty, period. And this is a problem for the Republicans and the Democrats. We don't we're not GM families anymore, or Ford families, or Plymouth families. Uh, you know, thank God Plymouth no longer exists, and neither does Oldsmobile. But we've shifted there. More to the point, we are in a day of reckoning. We are not simply out of money. We're so out of money that we might actually have to make some decisions. Who knows, the uh, U.S. Uh, government may even pass a budget one of these years. We haven't had one in uh, something like uh, almost two years, and uh, it's looking shaky that we'll have one before the 2012 presidential election. But federal deficits under Obama's best-case scenario in his budget plan that he released earlier this spring Every year we'll have, over the next five years, we'll have a deficit that is bigger than any incurred under George Bush. That's the best case scenario. This is, you know, not just fiscally bankrupt, it is intellectually bankrupt and people are pulling away from it. State shortfalls and municipal shortfalls are equally drastic. You know, this is the good news because it does mean that government is going to have to give something up. They're going to have to stop doing certain things, or at least the opportunity is there to really change things. And one of the reasons for that is that unlike, in, say, in the early 70s, we have a set of proven policy alternatives to address problems that everybody knows are completely unsustainable. This is a moment where things are about to change. And more to the point, it's not just that we have proven policy alternatives that we're out of money and nobody really seriously wants to be considered a Democrat or a Republican. You know, in the book we mention that if, uh, you know, your choices are limited to uh, Nancy Pelosi or John Boehner, the survivors will envy the dead. You know, even hardcore Republicans, they can't get behind a single presidential candidate because they're all misfits on some level. But uh, beyond all of this, we also have different ways of working uh, mojo in the political process, which Matt is going to talk about. Nick sort of posed the question, how is it different this time? The long sweep, as we mentioned earlier from 1970, is that independents are the only growth market in politics. There was a previous peak before this one, which wasn't as high or as close to as high, and that came in the early 1990s. That peak was tied in with the rise of the Reform Party movement and specifically Ross Pro ears chart uh, guy. It couldn't be more different than what we have right now. The most single biggest sort of factor probably in the growth of independence in the last few years has probably been the Tea Party movement doesn't have a leader. There isn't a single person that it's tied up with. This tracks with everything else that's happening in our economy and our life, but it's really truly a grassroots bottom-up movement, which is why I think it's going to last a lot longer. It's not just a matter of a political coalition growing. It's also a matter of the tactics that people are learning from. It's now, my contention is, next to impossible to suppress 
an important, sizable American political tendency for very long in this country, period. Especially if it is a tendency that is identified with one of the two major parties. We've seen in the last 10 years, increasingly, almost every two years at this point, there is suddenly appears out of nowhere a sizable, very angry and motivated block of people, including people who haven't been part of the political process. And my, isn't it strange how granny can use the internet now in ways that even seasoned political professionals do not. Interesting thing to do to compare the Howard Dean anti-war movement of 2004 to the Tea Party movement now. Dean believe it or not, was portrayed as a crazy man. I can't figure out why uh, when he came in. He was, uh, and actually one of the reasons why, besides the fact that he tended to look and talk and act like that, was that he was the first major politician to, in, under Bush, in Bush's America to campaign and stake himself as anti-war at a time when the country was going through a pretty pro-war, pro-interventionist foreign policy and frankly, semi-jingoistic spasm. He came out against that and suddenly he had available to him using the tactics of online, using all the stuff that we've learned in the other parts of our lives, he could tap into this overnight and it took the American political system by a brief storm. He didn't win the nomination, but he changed the politics. The Democrats were very clever about what to do with that. Just to say they just co-opted him. They uh, named him the uh, head, or he ran for and won, uh, head of the Democratic National uh, Committee. Uh, a lot of the anti-war movement immediately adhered inside the Democratic Party uh, power structure. MoveOn.org was right there. And then they all transferred very nicely to the anti-war candidate named Barack Obama. Um, that obviously worked out very, very well for Barack Obama. Uh, and uh, needless to say, the anti-war left having been subsumed by one of the ma two major parties, which like any party that once again gains power is not interested in what it campaigned on, if that uh, you know, forces you to change uh, Washington policy, they took them for granted and now the anti-war left does not exist. Well, fast forward to the Tea Party movement. Tea Party movement is probably even, if anything, more like right of center or more Republicanoid maybe of its membership than the uh, Howard Dean anti-war left was. However, they have been conscious from the beginning stressing independence from the Republican Party. Nick, uh, especially, and a lot of people at Reason TV have been covering anytime there's a Tea Party flavored rally in Washington. And it's fascinating to watch. We always sort of stick a camera in their face and say, you know, how many of you are Democrats? And like, there's a couple of sad people in the corner and like this. How many of you are or were Republicans? And there's just like a, you know, slightly embarrassed this. And how many of you are independents? And it's like, yeah, people are super keyed in to criticizing George W. Bush, granted it was a little bit too late at these rallies, and understanding that independence is key. What did the Tea Party do? Most of our commentariats and, and discussion of public policy is dominated by people who have a stake in one party or the other. So they have identified, and I think misconstrued, the Tea Party as, uh, as crazy and ineffectual because occasionally they will nominate or back a crazy person um, for office instead of a Republican who can win. They have said to the Republican Party on multiple occasions, we would rather have someone who has no chance of winning and knowing that that seat could go to a Democrat then rubber stamp another person who's going to be totally useless on TARP, bailouts, Medicare Part D, campaign finance reform, and a host of other things. Actually, they're not talking about campaign finance reform in the Tea Party. One of their great strengths is message discipline. It's about spending and it's about the Constitution, and it really isn't about all that much more usually. That 
we argue, is where the future is at in politics right now. Once you can no longer be taken for granted, you have more power. The Tea Party inflicted some actual change on the constitution or the composition of the Republican Party in 2010. And I think this is the first year in a hell of a long time that we've heard such crazy things as new Republican politicians on Capitol Hill talking about cutting defense. And even though the Tea Party doesn't talk about defense all that much and is probably divided on it, the single-minded focus on spending is producing candidates like a Rand Paul, like a Mike Lee, uh, like a lot of the, uh, the freshman class who are willing to take things on. So question is, where do you go from here? Um, I think the obvious next step is for people on the left, Democrats, who have been affiliating or thinking that if you just vote for the right top dog, you're going to see uh, uh, policies that you like. Uh, I think there's uh, an, an education, a learning curve there. They're not only learning from the fact that Obama has been terrible on transparency on many civil liberties, specifically on the drug war and on war in general. They're also seeing that the Tea Party is successful by maintaining this kind of independence. The Just Say Now campaign. This is a new thing. There's a lot of drug legalization groups that many of you are familiar in or take part in. This is a semi-new one that came out, I think, last year, uh, launched by Jane Hampshire of Fire Dog Lake, who is a total progressive. You know, She wants single-payer health insurance and all that, but she also has an independent streak and takes civil liberties pretty seriously, at least the ones that she agrees with. Uh, and, uh, and she launched this campaign uh, along with Proposition 19 in California. But part of it, there's an open, heavy flirtation with Republicans like Gary Johnson, who I think sits on the board of Just Say Now uh, as we speak, they understand that if they go to the Democratic Party and say, look, there's going to be full legalization on the ballot in 2012 in California, maybe Nevada, maybe Colorado, um, that's going to bring out voters who should be Democratic, because unfortunately, people assume that uh, you know being against the drug war means that you're more likely to be Democratic. So you need to be good on this issue, or else we're going to go Republican, or we're going to go independent. If you look at all of the progress made on the drug war in the last 15 years, name any of it that has anything to do with the politician. It doesn't. It's individual people using technology, using online swarms and the initiative process to create a, first a medical marijuana movement, and now we're starting to kick through the front door and demanding freedom through the front. So kind of a summary statement, we're all learning the technologies as we go of freedom and political change. We're learning to use this stuff to our advantage to make the dwindling power structures of the parties more responsive to what we want. And we're living at a time when there really is an almost unprecedented gap, I think, between the American public and its policymakers. And that is an interesting, very fluid time. There have been solid majorities against bailout economics and all facets of them now basically since they shoved tarp down our throats way back when. At some point, slowly, the politicians are, are beginning to realize that. And the people on the other side who are changing the conversation are realizing that they're getting more power in their hands, not by supporting the politicians, but by opposing them. So with that, you know, the book is a gesture to speed up this process as we go along, to break the spell of tribalism, uh, if you will, and to encourage people to look at some other ideas, ideas that are perfectly in sync with the long sweep that we've had this last 40 years, where everything is going from the centralizers, from the kind of statists in the middle, to the individual. Politics has to go that way. It'll go there last. It's not going to happen tomorrow, but it has to go in that direction because humans demand it ultimately to have more control over their universe.
And that's the uh, final uh, kind of note of why we're optimistic is that when you recognize that politics is the lagging indicator of American society, it's not where the society is headed, it gets dragged into the future. And this is true when you're talking about social issues, it's true when you're talking about economic issues. And we have gone into a world now where we simply won't put up, given the richness and the diversity, a true diversity of our non-political lives, we're not gonna stand pat for the status quo when it comes to politics. On September 15th, the Cato Institute will host its annual Constitution Day Symposium in Washington, D.C. The conference, the Supreme Court, passed and prologue, is a chance for participants from around the country to gather and discuss this past year's high court rulings and commemorate Constitution Day and the publication of the Cato Supreme Court Review. For the schedule and list of speakers, visit cato.org slash Constitution Day. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.